Let's come to the book of Philippians. We're turning to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, please. And we're turning to the verse 1. We're coming to this third chapter now of Philippians. We've passed the halfway point as we continue in our studies, the pursuit of joy. And today our title uh, that we're giving to this message is Not by Works. Not by Works. Philippians chapter 3, please. And we're turning to the verse 1. Of course, this is the word of the Lord. And it's Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to the church in Philippi. And he writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. <coughs> to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. Uh, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh. I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, uh, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ, be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, that the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. We trust the Lord. We'll bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this afternoon. We come to our twelfth study in the book of Philippians. We've been on quite a journey so far. The last time we visited this letter, we spent some time considering the qualities of two Christ-like men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we learned that God wants men and women who are available, available to serve him. But not just that, he wants men and women who are sensitive uh, people, genuine people who don't do things out of their own interests, but and not to promote their own name, but rather who have a genuine care uh, for their brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as a genuine care for those who are lost and outside of Christ and reaching them with the gospel. But of course, the final characteristic that we learned from Timothy and Epaphroditus last week was that they were reliable. And God wants men and women who are available, who are sensitive, and who are reliable, who can be depended upon. But we move into chapter 3 uh, today, and I'm sure as we read this little section of Philippians this afternoon, you may have noticed that it contains some strong statements by the Apostle Paul. We see in verse 2 that he describes some individuals as dogs which I'm sure in Paul's day wouldn't have been the politest thing to say, and it certainly wouldn't be the politest thing to say to that colleague in work that maybe annoys you a little bit. It's not the sort of thing that you would say to them. And yet there's something of pressing importance 
that demands of Paul such a graphic statement concerning these characters to describe them as dogs. And in the same way, if you allow your eye to scan the text, you'll find in verse 8 that he considers the things in his life which were formerly a basis, a platform for his proud standing, he considers them now as dumb. Not exactly a word that you would use in front of your guests in your home. So, with the emphasis on dogs and dung, you, you know that this matter that Paul is speaking about, it's of extreme importance to him. Because he's not simply using this terminology for effect. He is a point to make. And every word that he uses is under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And it's there by God's explicit design. And therefore, it's imperative for us to understand just why Paul was so concerned. And why he would describe these people as dogs in such a way as that. And here in these verses, we're given an insight into the Apostle's heart. And we also receive instruction underscoring just how vital and critical the nature of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is. We'll consider the opening three verses of the chapter today, and then next week, next time we come to our studies in Philippians, God willing, we'll consider down to the verse 9. But I feel really today the little phrase that we could stamp on these first three verses. If I was able to take a, a, a staple and or a stamp and stamp a phrase over the first three verses of, of, of Philippians 3. I would borrow from Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Where he says, not by works, lest any man should boast. And this is what Paul is getting at here. We're going to explore that a little bit. Imagine for a moment that in the course of a month, you have a number of deposits that you put into your bank account. If you went into the bank, you marked it, you made sure your account number was right, or you used your card and you deposited your cheque or your cash, or whatever it is you have to put in. And you don't just do that once throughout the month, you do, you do it on a number of occasions. And on each occasion, you make a note of what you've deposited, and indeed, you've tallied it in your mind, so that at the end of the month, you're feeling you have a confident relationship with your bank balance. And then your statement comes in, maybe by email, or some people still get it by post. And your statement comes in and you turned at it and you looked at it and you were horrified because what you thought was there wasn't there. And it quickly became apparent to you that all the money that you'd been paying into your account, thinking that it was going in, was an actual fact going out. And each check that you deposited had been transferred as a debit rather than a credit. So much so that instead of being in profit at the end of the month, you were actually in loss. You see, as Paul writes to the church of Philippi, he writes the words in this section, this is what he's concerned with. There are those who were trying to influence the church, and they were all about religious works, or earning their way to heaven, salvation plus. And those who, these are those who were involved in religion. And it was like bringing our money to that bank, but instead of being in profit, they were in debt. Because their righteous acts were as filthy rags. In every system of religion that requires righteous work for salvation, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, the Roman Catholic Church, even liberal Protestantism, or whatever it is, and there are many more religions and cults that we could name, wherever we find human achievement religion, 
where you assume that you could do more good than bad works, or certain good works that will earn you favour with God, all of these are false religious systems, and the people that are in these systems are deceived about their true relationship with God. And so again, as we come to the text, we're actually looking really here at a comparison between the religious and the righteous, and the false and the true. And firstly, Paul gives us an, exhort, or an exhortation. And his exhortation is simply this. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at the verse here with me. In verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren. Now that word finally would be better translated furthermore, or so then, or now then. It's a connecting word from the section before. It's, it's, it's a transition into a new section. We know that Paul had been dealing with church unity throughout chapter 2. And now we're coming on to a new topic of conversation but that word finally can throw us. It certainly doesn't indicate the end of Paul's letter. It's 44 verses remain. But he throws in this word finally as, as an indicator that he's moving on to a slightly new train of thought. And the basic theme, he reminds them of the basic theme that he's been encouraging throughout this epistle, which is this, rejoice, rejoice. He's simply punctuating this theme of joy. He lays down this very simple principle that a rejoicing is connected to a relationship. Rejoice, he says, in the Lord. Now, we call this this series The Pursuit of Joy. And this is the general theme throughout the book. We find joy in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. We'll find it plenty through chapter 3, and we'll find it again in chapter 4. And so Paul reminds them about the general theme of this epistle, which is about joy. And he adds for the first time this little phrase. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Now I hope you would agree with me. Today, when I say that out of all the people on the planet, that Christians ought to be the most happy, would you agree with me? Because Paul says that we are in the Lord. And the circumference, the centre of our life, the very existence of everything that goes on in our life, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our experience should be exactly the same as Old Testament heroes of the faith, only greater because we now rejoice in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, you can think of King David, whenever his soldiers were going to rebel against him, it tells us that David encouraged himself in who? David encouraged himself in the Lord. He learned in life's darkest circumstances how to rejoice in the Lord. You remember how Nehemiah, when troubled by the enemies of Israel, and how they came to oppose the building of the wall, Nehemiah even stood and he reminded God's own people to arise and build that the joy of the Lord was their strength. Nehemiah, he found his strength in the Lord. And now Paul, the apostle, coming to us in the New Testament age, is saying even louder and more repetitively, because we are in Christ, and the fact that we all have all these blessings in Christ, that we should be able to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, he's saying categorically that true joy can only be found in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. I think it would be safe to assume that in reading chapter 3 of Philippians that 
Paul believed that they were in danger of finding their joy somewhere else. And Paul wanted to address this. My question to you as the Church of Christ today is, where is your joy centered? I want you to ask that question to your own soul. As we sit in this service today, where is your joy centered? Are you in danger like the Philippians of centering your joy and your life's the satisfaction in something else other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your joy found in the Lord? I mean really in the Lord. Is he the source of your life's joy in all things? Now think about it for a moment because I've been thinking about this during the week in this study. We can enjoy a church atmosphere. What I mean is the things that surround the church rather than Christ himself. Some of you enjoy singing. Some of you enjoy serving as musicians. Others enjoy just the company of other believers. Maybe you're lonely at home and you enjoy getting out and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Some of you enjoy listening to the preaching of God's word. Maybe even more so when I'm away. But you like to hear the word of God and you like to read the word of God and maybe at home you like to study the word of God and some of you enjoy praying aloud. We enjoy talking about prayer. We enjoy exercising prayer. Seeing the prayers of God's people answered. Others enjoy going around the doors, witnessing to people, even giving out a tract in their workplace for Christ, giving their testimony. Some even enjoy serving. Others just enjoy the ritual of sitting maybe around the Lord's table, taking the bread, taking the cup. And all of those things are right. And we should enjoy all of them. But what I want you to see is we, we can enjoy, enjoy the occasion. And we can enjoy being with people and we can enjoy the coming along to this building. But I'm asking the question, is that where your joy is found? Or is your joy found in Christ? Rejoice in the Lord. Now if you're rejoicing in the Lord, it will lead you to do all those things, by the way. But what I'm asking you is, where is the source, the source of that rejoicing, the source of that joy? I wonder if you considered that all those things could just be merely religious things. You could come here out of routine. I wonder if you ever considered the possibility of that. I wonder if all these things that we enjoy were taken from us. Would we still have that joy or would our joy be in something deeper? Would our joy be rooted and grounded in a person? In the reality of Christ, who lives within us, the hope of glory. Is our joy in the circumstances and externalities of church life, or is it found in the Lord Jesus Christ himself? So Paul's first exhortation, as he comes to chapter 3, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now those words, those three words, in the Lord, are so important. Now that phrase will come up again before we finish the book, so let's move on for now. But that's Paul's exhortation. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. But then he, he warns the people not only if they're an exhortation, but he warns them that they're endangered. Because he, he says, beware. He says, beware of it, verse 2. And Paul, he was concerned because there were dangerous people who were moving around the Philippian church. Their teachings were destructive to the joy of their genuine faith. And Paul says, beware of dogs, uh, beware of evil workers, and beware of the concision. Now, there were these people, and 
they were coming along to the church and they described, we can describe them as Judaizers. And what Judaizers were, well, they were people who accepted that the Lord Jesus Christ, he was God, he was the Messiah, but these people believed that indeed you needed to trust Christ as Savior, but you had to become a Jew first. That you had to obey the law of Moses before you were able to be saved, before a Gentile was able to be saved. And this was a dangerous, dangerous doctrine. And you know, as we speak about these Judaizers, Paul in verse 2, he tells us exactly what he thinks of them. These men didn't deny salvation by grace outright. They simply said, salvation came by grace plus works. Specifically, in this section, they speak about grace plus circumcision. They were saying a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It's not sufficient for them simply to trust in Christ. They must obey Moses. And this was a direct attack on the principle of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you see, one other thing, you see, there was no other thing failed to arouse Paul's wrath and his fire than when the gospel was at stake. And so he writes of these Judaizers and he says, beware of dogs. Dogs. That speaks of their depravity. Do you know that the Orthodox Jew in those days would have described the Gentile as a dog? But here Paul, he turns to these Judaizers and he turns to the term on themselves and he says, no, no, you are the dogs. He's not using names. Rather, he's comparing his false teachers to the dirty dogs who prowled about the cities, feeding on the rubbish and filth of the street. And like these dogs, these Judaizers snapped at Paul's heels and followed him from place to place, barking their false doctrines and waiting for Paul to leave certain churches. And they would come in and they would confuse and unsettle the flock. And they were troublemakers. And, and they need careers of going in and bringing in a dangerous infection of false doctrine. See, they're depravity. But then Paul, he also goes on, he says, beware of evil workers. See their deeds. See their deeds. These men taught that the sinner was saved by grace plus good works, especially the works of the law. And instead of, of bringing people nearer to the Lord, they were taking people further away from the Lord by doing this. And then Paul describes them as the concision, or some other translations put it, uh, the, the mutilation. And it speaks of their doctrine. These Judaizers taught that circumcision was essential for salvation. But Paul states that circumcision of itself was only a mutilation. The true Christian has ex- experienced a spiritual circumcision in Christ and doesn't need any fleshly operations. You see, we must be on our guard against those who say that man can save himself. Let's beware of those who teach that by confirmation or sprinkling or infant baptism or the Lord's table that a man might be made right before God. Let's beware of those who add to the simplicity of the gospel, of those who seek to add the the damnable plus gospel plus works to undermine the work of the cross of Christ. I wonder, do you ever hear people say, unless you belong to our group, you can't be saved. Or unless you participate in our ceremonies or our rules, you can't be saved. Or unless you were saved in our building, you're not really saved. Do you ever hear that sort of talk? If you ever do, don't listen to it. 
Because they undermine the gospel and they deny the finished work of Christ at the cross of Calvary. Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatians to make clear that salvation is wholly by God's grace through faith in Christ plus nothing. By the way, could I add as a couple of side notes. The first one is for the ladies especially, the sisters in the assembly. Sometimes I hear of ladies listening to and reading the books of Joyce Meyer. She is a false teacher. She's involved in the Word of Faith movement, which is dangerous and deceptive. Remember, we can be fooled by these people because they mix truth with lies. That's how they fool you. Just because a man or a, a man or a woman or a movement takes the name of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that they that the Christ that they proclaim is the Christ of God or the Christ of the Bible or the Christ of the Gospel. Joyce Meyer is a false teacher. Another person who I would want to warn you against, and the reason why I mention his name is because he is due to be in our country taking a so-called Christian event in a couple of weeks' time. Francis Chan. A few years ago, I personally would have endorsed his books, especially Crazy Love. But you would think that Chan would be an excellent person who we can trust, considering he graduated from Master Seminary under John MacArthur, but not so, because he is now involving and associating himself with the ecumenical movement. And he's due to speak up there at the Ulster University in Coleraine in a few weeks' time. And some Christians are planning on flocking to hear him. And as an under-shepherd of this fellowship here at Grange, on the authority of God's word, I plead if you don't go. And if you hear anyone plans to go, discourage them. I join Paul in saying Joyce Meyer, Francis Chan, dogs. They may name Christ, but they are sadly distorting the gospel of my Saviour. Beware, says Paul. Beware. There's Paul's exhortation, rejoice in the Lord. Then he speaks of the how the people were endangered, and he said, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the conceit. But finally Paul gives an explanation. For, for what he was wanting to achieve, and he speaks of how we worship God in the Spirit. Look at verse 3, it says, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now in the third verse, and with this we're going to conclude, having given this exhortation, he gives this word of explanation for he says, for those who are in the circumcision, these men are, are making a big fuss about circumcision, about the outward feature of it, but we are the true circumcision, he says. And this is his way of saying, we are the true believers. We, we are the true Christians. Uh, we are the true people of God. Now, now, the physical act of circumcision in the Old Testament times and the male organ was not just meant to be a physical act for the sake of it. Uh, this in itself is an interesting study, and we don't have time to go into a full study on it today, but I just want to mention a few things to help us in our understanding. God ordained circumcision as a symbol, as a sign, and a very important one, not just a physical act, but a spiritual reminder. And circumcision, and this is important, was a sign of the cutting away of sin. It was a symbol of salvation. Now that's important. 
It was a sign of the cutting away of sin, and it was a symbol of salvation. Nowhere or at no point is a man's depravity more apparent than in the procreative act. And you say, why did he say that? Well, we know man is a sinner by what he says. We know man is a sinner by what he does. And we know man is a sinner by his attitude. And we can see on the outside there are sinful deeds, but how do we know a man is a sinner in the base of his character? How, how do we know a man is a sinner in the root of his existence? Well, the answer is by what he creates. And whatever comes from the loins of man is wicked because man is wicked. And so I say to you, nowhere then in the anatomy of a man or in the activity of a man is depravity more manifest than in the appropriative act because it's an act precisely at that point where he demonstrates the depth of his sinfulness because he produces a sin. But evidently among, evidently among the Jews, there was, this had no longer become a spiritual act, but it was just a religious act of no meaning. And so when Paul says we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit, the Jews were circumcised on the outside, not the inside, and God was more pleased with the Gentiles who were not circumcised on the outside, but circumcised on the inside. So we, so what we're really saying is, and it's important, this is why I said this, circumcision was the symbol of cutting away sin, and it was the symbol of salvation. So Paul says we are the circumcision, he is saying we don't need the physical act because we have surrendered our sinful lives to Christ. And in Christ alone, my hope is found, he cut away my sin at the cross of Calvary, and therefore I worship him in spirit and truth. We are of the circumcision because we are in Christ. And he has dealt with sin at the cross of Calvary. And Paul therefore says, we worship in the spirit. And what he means by that is we don't glory in works or these things that the Judaizers are seeking for us to do. We glory in Christ Jesus. We don't glory in ritual. We don't glory in, excellent, in an excellent report card and that we've created for ourselves and all the good things that we do. Our spiritual worship has God as its supreme object, the Spirit as its supreme force, and Christ Jesus is its supreme joy. That's it. Not one of our works is righteous. Before God, each good thing we do is as a healthy rag. Moreover, we don't boast in our own righteousness or the things that we do, but we boast only in Christ. And we have, as Paul says at the end of the verse, no confidence in the flesh. John Calvin says, to place one's trust in anything outside of Christ is to have confidence in the flesh. It distorts the gospel and endangers the soul. A lady was arguing with her pastor about faith and works. I think that getting to heaven, she said, is like a rowing boat, she said. One oar is faith and the other is works. And if you use both, you'll get there. And if you use only one, you go round in circles. And the pastor replied, there's only one problem with your illustration. He says, no one's going to heaven in a room book. There's only one good work that takes us to heaven. And that's the finished work of Christ at the cross of Calvary. Are you depending on that? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone?
you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the book of Revelation, nobody goes in without a robe. No, you say, well then, I better get one of those robes. Can I buy it? No. Can I earn it? No. And then each of us are in deep difficulty. Yes. Unless another has done on our behalf what we couldn't do for ourselves. You see, it will be clothed in his righteousness alone. It will stand before the throne. Nothing of you. Nothing of me. And that's the good news of the gospel. And that's why Paul was so concerned. <clears throat> and that's why Paul called these people dogs. Because they were distorting the gospel of Christ and taking away from what Christ accomplished at Calvary. Watch out, says Paul, for dogs and evil men and mutilators of the flesh. We are the true circumcision. He says, we worship God and the Spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus. We don't put our confidence in the flesh. I wonder, is that a description of you? Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. Father, it teaches us so many things and Thank you for this exhortation that Paul gives us. He says, Rejoice not in our circumstances, not in the things that go on, not in the things that would cause us to be down, but Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. We thank you, Father, that our rejoicing, that our joy is not found in our life circumstances, but is found in our relationship with God Almighty. And we thank you, Father. We thank you, Father, that you're the God who seeks and wants to have a relationship with his people. We thank you, Father, that individually each of us can say that you're interested in me. And Father, we thank you today as we come and as we gather as a body of your people in this local church that we can worship your name and we can say with our hearts, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Father, we come to you today and we realise there are those who are round and about and Paul has given us this morning that even the day in Philippians they were endangered by those Judaizers but Father, in these days there are many, many who would take the name of Christ but would be mutilators of the faith and Father, we, we pray that you would protect us from such. We pray, Father, that you would keep us close to you and that, Father, our joy would be in Christ alone at all times. Father, we pray that indeed you would help us to remember these things and we thank you, Father, that we can say we are of the circumcision, we are in Christ. We thank you, Father, that the work of sin, the work or that sin was destroyed and finished at the cross. We thank you, Father, that Christ has done the work that needs to be done and we are left today and all we need to do is put our trust in Christ alone through faith alone. And Father, we praise you for that. Father, bless us just now as we sing together. We pray, Father, that as we sing this hymn, that it will be the response of our hearts as we have listened to your word today. We pray this in our Saviour's name. Amen.